The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bible with you, would you join me? Genesis chapter 17. As we continue our study... The life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. We will read together the whole chapter, but we will not work through the whole chapter this morning. We'll we'll finish chapter 17 next week. When Abraham was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight Days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. But he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He is broken. My covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes out of nowhere and finds, chooses a a pagan man in a pagan city. And makes a promise to him. A promise that if he would leave his land and his father's house, and if he would go, that God would be faithful to him to show him to a land and to bless him with everlasting blessings. And this man, Abram, goes... He leaves Ur. He begins to travel, unsure of the ultimate destination, but trusting in the Lord to show him where he is to go. He comes to this land of Canaan. And while he's there in Genesis chapter 14, there's a famine. All of a sudden, this promise of God seems to be in jeopardy. And so Abram takes it upon himself to to leave this land that God had shown him and to go to Egypt for what he believed was the preservation of his life and his family's life. And in going to Egypt, hatches a plan to preserve him even further. And in so doing, Pharaoh takes Sarai, Abram's wife, as his own wife. And there... Abram lives until God intervenes. It is faithful to his promises to Abram. And Abram leaves Egypt with great possessions, travels back to this land that God had showed him there in the land of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram wants to know how he can be sure that God is going to do what God has said he would do, how he can know that he will have, an all, have offspring and how he can know that he will possess this land. And in his questioning, 
Abram believes God and this unbelievable act on the part of the grace of God, God counts Abram's faith to him as righteousness. And then God cuts a covenant with Abram so that Abram can know that God is trustworthy to keep his promises. And as the animals are torn in two, Abram does nothing in passing through, but God and God alone passes through, dignifying that God is the keeper of the covenants and that he's the one that's willing to take our punishment when we fall short. This this Abrahamic covenant is made. The covenant is cut. In Genesis 16, there's a great fall in Abram. Abram heeded the words of his wife. No regard to God as a child with her servant, Hagar. That's where we left off last week. Where we pick up this morning, we realize that we've hit the fast forward button 13 years. 13 years. This morning as we look at the first part of Genesis chapter 17, there's one main thing that I want us to walk away knowing. And that is that God is almighty. God is almighty. Now we see that in this text in three ways. We see it in a renewed covenant. We see it in a renamed man. And we see it in the requirement of circumcision. All of these things proclaim to us and to Abram, who after today, gratefully, is now Abraham, and I can say that, that God is almighty, a covenant renewed. God comes and He meets Abram again. And He speaks to him and He renews His covenant with him. God does not do this because God needed to be reminded of the covenant that He had cut. God doesn't do this because God had forgotten His promises. God was not the one who needed to be reminded. God was not the one who needed the covenant renewed, but Abram did. Abram needed it. I think the reason why is because of the passage of time. We see in chapter 17 when Abram was 99 years old. Abram is now 99. He was 86 years old when He and Sarai had doubted God's means to fulfill His promises. When they had doubted Sarai's ability to bear a child. When they took matters into their own hands. And now it has been another 13 years. And there's still 
no son of promise. No son from Sarai. No promised offspring. Instead, in its place, the only thing that exists is silence. There is no reason to believe that God had spoken to Abram between chapter 16 and chapter 17. I don't believe he has. Had he, anytime God speaks, that's a monumental occasion, right? I mean, Moses surely would have recorded that. God would have wanted us to know. These are, these are not uh, trifle encounters that Abram is having with God. These are monumentous encounters. And so there is, there is silence in the text, and there's every reason to believe that there is silence in Abram's life. That 13 years had passed and God had not spoken. We're struck with this reminder that God works on His own timetable, doesn't He? God doesn't bend to the will of men. His actions aren't determined by our clocks. God works on His own time. And more often than not, it's slow. It's slow. It's slower than we want it to be. It's slower than we expect it to be. Isn't that the reality here with with Abram? It's been 13 years since Ishmael... 10 years before that. We're 23, 24, 25 years since God had come to Abram in the Ur of the Chaldees and made this promise to him. 25 years have passed. We're reminded, and I hope it's a, a helpful and good reminder for you That life in the covenant is regularly mundane. Life in covenant relationship with God is more often than not mundane. There's not always in the life of Abram, there's not always these high mountaintop experiences. It's not always great and deep, dreadful sleep. It's not always God speaking. It's not always uh, a theophany passing before Him where God's presence is with Him. It's not always those things. More often than not, in the life of Abram, it's simply a covenant relationship in where Abram just puts one foot in front of, the no- in front of another day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, just living in covenant relationship with God. 
following God in the ordinary, boring, everyday life. Are you okay with that? Because I think sometimes maybe we sort of fall into this wrong line of thinking that, that our relationship with the, the covenant God is always mountaintop experiences. And that if there's not always this sense of um, intense spiritual highs, that there's something wrong. And it could be that there's something wrong with us. Maybe sometimes we think there's something wrong with God, that God has forgotten about us or God isn't there. And we sort of fall into this trap of believing that if things are just mundane and ordinary and everyday, then things aren't well. And if things aren't well, then I can't do the things that God has called me to do because I'm not experiencing God the way that I want to experience Him. And so regularly, the, the response is, well, things aren't good, so I'm just going to pull away from everything until God comes and meets me again on my mountaintop experience. So I can't, I can't be of service to God or to the church because I'm not living in these mountaintop high spiritual experiences. I'm not, I'm not experiencing these uh, remarkable, miraculous um, emotions and and. Um, you know, uh, seeming transfigurations um, with, with God. They're just not there. And so until He comes again, I'm just going to wait on Him. So much of our covenant life with God is lived in just mundane, everyday, ordinary, where we just put one foot in front of the other and we follow Him and we honor Him and we obey Him and we seek Him. And He doesn't always meet us on a mountaintop experience. But that does not mean that He is not there. And that does not mean that we're not called to obey Him. That does not mean we're not called to serve the church or to serve others. That does not mean we're not called to lead our families. That does not mean we're not called just to continue living with Him, for Him. God is in the everyday. God is in the mundane. Thirteen years. Thirteen years had passed. Are you okay with that? Or do you expect to always have these mountaintop experiences? Well, God, in His grace, comes and He speaks into this silence. And He reminds Abram of His faithful promises. And Abram has this covenant renewed with him. By God. I, as I thought about that, I thought, man, I wonder. We leave chapter 16 in this great fall. And I think if, if I had made the mistake that Abram had made and God had responded with 13 years of silence, I would have thought that God had forgotten me. And I would have thought that I absolutely deserved to be forgotten. But God had not forgotten Abram. 
God is faithful to his promises, even when we fail. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, verse 1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God speaks, and the first thing he declares is his name to Abram. I am God Almighty. This is El Shaddai. This is the first occurrence of this name of God in the Bible. It will not be the last occurrence. It will regularly be put forth, especially in Genesis. But this is the first occurrence. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. This is God saying, this is who I am. I'm God Almighty. God Almighty. I love that Walt Coffee said that's God's last name. He's God Almighty. He is. It means that God can do whatever He wants. That's what His name means. It carries with it an understanding of power and might. That I am, God says, the God of all power, the God of all might, the God that can do all things. I am God Almighty, God says. And this is how God chose to reveal Himself to His people up until Moses. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, by my name, what we have is, as Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, God is revealing himself, starting with Abraham, then on through up until Moses as the God of all might, the powerful one who can do whatever he wants. There's been a lot of study, a lot of discussion on the formation of this word, God Almighty, El Shaddai. And there are some who say that etymologically it could be translated God of the mountain. I think that could be understandable because God regularly meets with his people on literal mountains. Um, It could also be understood as God the most high. He who dwells on the mountain. It is that God is all-powerful and mighty. That he is able to fulfill the awesome promises that he has made to Abram. So when he speaks, he says, Abram, my name is 
God Almighty, El Shaddai. Meaning, regardless if you are 19 or 99, it depends not on you, Abram. It depends on me. He is God Almighty. It causes us to stop and to think, as Abram most certainly needed to, as to what we believe about God. I said regularly over the last 13 years with you that this is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God. Do you believe that He is still El Shaddai? That He is still God Almighty. He is still the God of all power and all might, able to do as He pleases, faithful to keep His promises, not hindered by the things that hinder us. That He is the God Most High. Do you believe that He's God Almighty. I am God Almighty. God says. Therefore, because of that, He gives this command. Walk before me and be blameless. Two, two corresponding, complementing commands here. The first is Walk before me. Abram, I am God Almighty, so walk before me. What does that mean to to walk before God? It means to seek Him, to proactively seek after Him. To walk before Him means that we are actively, proactively, intentionally seeking after Him. That's the first part of what it means. The second part of what it means is that we live with the, reali- the realization that everything that we do is seen by Him. If we are walking before Him, that means we're, we're seeking Him out, knowing that everything we do is done before Him. That He sees us. That He is watching. That He is with us. He is aware of us. He cares how we live. He cares what we do. We're called to walk before Him. To live with God in mind. To honor Him. Because He always sees. He always sees. Hagar knew this. You're the God who sees, he says. You're the God who sees. Genesis 16, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. But it's not just a call to to walk visibly before God. It's also a call to be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. Blamelessness is perfect obedience. To walk before the God who sees, to walk before God... And always, on every occasion, obey. Make no mistake about it, church. God requires perfect obedience. God requires perfect obedience. Now, now 
We're, we, are, we are grace people, right? And we, we love the grace of God. And we proclaim the grace of God. And we, we love and proclaim and believe in the mercy of God. And we, we love and proclaim and believe in the love of God. And we can focus regularly on those things, quite frankly, because we, we need those things desperately. But in, in focusing on, in seeing, in knowing, and in experiencing the grace and the mercy and the love of God, we cannot, we cannot forget that God's requirement is perfection. It is. God's not in heaven going, just, just try hard. Did you give it your all? Great job. Here's a trophy. God demands. His requirement is perfection. It's blamelessness. This is the requirement to Abram, isn't it? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2. That, you see the, the causal relationship here, right? You, your blamelessness before me is the causal relationship that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God's requirement for the covenant is perfection. God's requirement has always been perfection. God's requirement is still perfection. But Abram has the same problem we have. And that is, is we are sinful, crooked, depraved people. And we are not perfect. And so what do we do if God's requirement is utter perfection, total blamelessness? For there to be a covenant between us, that's His requirement. What do we do? Well, we do what Abram does and we fall on our face before him in humility and mercy. And we find in him the grace and mercy that says, I passed through to take the punishment because you're not blameless. And so God came in flesh and made his dwelling among us, the person of Jesus Christ who was blameless, who was perfection, but yet took on the curse of sin, took the penalty of the covenant broken so that His perfection could be, it's a big word, but it's important, imputed, freely given to us. Because we're not perfect. And we're not blameless. So this is what you see. There's tension in this text, isn't there? Because I read verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you. And I go, God, you've already made it. You made it two chapters ago. What do you mean that I may make? You've already made it. And he had already made it. But his requirement of perfection had not changed. The requirement of blamelessness had not changed. 
So Abram falls on his face before God and look at the shift in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, Abram. It is with you. I've already made it. And I've promised to keep it. And I will keep it. I will keep it. Because I'm going to satisfy the requirement. Because you can't, Abram. Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. How can God say that? God can say that my covenant is with you because it was Abram's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. That's the key to verse 4. Faith equals righteousness. Not blamelessness. And so then in verse 5, God displays that He is God Almighty, not just in His name, but in the renaming of Abraham. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Abraham, this is a new name. Abram means exalted father. That's what it literally means. Names don't carry the kind of meanings that they carried in their day. In their day, they, they carried significant meanings. Abram meant exalted father. And you, you read that and you go, well, he hasn't been a father all these years. So, you know, he's walking around going, I am exalted father. It probably was referring to his father, meaning that he was of uh, distinguished lineage or high birth, that his father was the exalted father. It certainly has to be um, God's providence in that God that Abram sees God as exalted father. But here God speaks and changes his name. For a hundred years now, he's been Abram. And God says, from now on, you are Abraham. No longer is it your name is exalted father, but now your name is father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. That's literally what Abraham means. Meaning, from now on, Abraham, when anyone calls your name, or when you give it, it will be a perpetual reminder of the promises that God has made to him that he would be the father of a multitude. Now, how does this renaming display that God is God Almighty? Well, that is because that this is an illustration of God's sovereignty. To give a name is an exercise of sovereignty, right? When I was born, I was, my parents were sovereign over me. They gave me the name. I didn't take it for myself. They gave it to me. It was an exercise of their sovereignty. We know this. You know, we don't, we don't have child dedication here and you bring your child up and you say, you know, this is, this is little Johnny. But I hereby declare from now on, you are now Daniel. Would that work if I did that? No. You'd be like, this is a cult. I'm out of here. Like, I don't have the authority to change somebody's name. To change a name is a 
It's a display of, of, of sovereignty. I mean, we, we, we saw that over the last week. As a sovereign queen died and new names were given. You're not, not Prince Charles anymore. You're King Charles III. You're not the Duke and, and Duchess of whatever William and Kate were the Duke and Duchess of. You are now this, whatever they are now. And who said that? The king said that. The king said that. This is an exercise, this is an illustration of absolute sovereignty. Because he's God Almighty. And he can change a name if he wants to change a name. And guess what? From this moment forward, henceforth and forevermore, he is not Abram. Never again in the Scriptures ever is he Abram. Never again. And can you imagine the work he had to do? Can you imagine poor Sarai? Can you imagine 325 servants? From now on, I'm Abraham. Because God is God Almighty and He can change a name if He wants to change a name. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I have already done it, Abraham. And then there is this string of promises and blessings that are remarkable. I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham. This covenant will be established between us. This covenant was inaugurated in 15. It is established in 17 through the sign of circumcision. But not only, this is what's crazy, not only that, Abram, not only am I going to do this to you, but I'm also will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This is the covenant confirmed, established, renewed. From you, Abraham, nations will come. Not only nations will come, Abram, but kings will come. This is the first mention of a kingly line. This is the first time to Abraham that there's any mentions of kings. It's been offspring and children and multitudes and nations. This is the first Mention of kings, and it is vitally important. 
Because 1,000 years after this, we thought 13 years was long. 1,000 years after this comes the founding of the Davidic dynasty. Which would ultimately reach its fulfillment 1,000 years after David in the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Look how Matthew chapter 1 begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. This is messianic prophecy. From you, Abraham will come. Kings, kings. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. For an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant that would eventually result in an everlasting possession an everlasting land. Now there's a lot of discussion here in verse 8. Because God says that I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And so we run up on some, what seems to be rocky ground. Which is what? God has already told Abraham, you're not getting the land. You will die and you'll be buried with your fathers. And there will be 400 years of bondage. And then we'll drive out the Amorites and it'll be the land. So why does God say... Abraham, I'm giving you the land. And so some say, well, it just, it's just figurative here. He's not really giving him the land. He's giving the land to his, his offspring. But we cannot say that with this text. The reason why we can't say that is because we treat in the same context, we would treat one verse differently than we treat another. That's never a good thing. I will establish my... My covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. So we, we would read verse 7 and say that God means that He would be the God of both Abraham and the God of His offspring, right? That when God says, I will be the God of you and them, God means I will be the God of you, Abraham, and the God of them. So then if we go to verse 8 and we say, well, God doesn't really mean Abraham. He just means his offspring with the land. Then we run into some problems because we can't treat verse 7 one way and treat verse 8 another. Does that make sense? So that's one way people try to justify and make sense of the text. And they just totally mess it up. So what does God mean when he says, I'm going to give you, Abraham, an everlasting possession, the land of Canaan. 
What does he mean? Well, he means exactly that. He means an everlasting possession because it is an everlasting covenant. And what we see in verse 8 when God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land. What we see is the shadows of the promised resurrection. That's what we see. That this promised land is not simply the physical land in which Abram was at that moment. But it is an everlasting promised land, an everlasting rest that comes from resurrection. Abram, you will die and you will be buried with your fathers, but that will not be the end. You will be raised again to enter the promised land. This, this is not just my way of understanding. This, this is right of Hebrews' way of understanding it. Hebrews 3 and 4. We'll just go 4 verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did for his, from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the divisions of soul and spirit of joints marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart that there is a promised rest and a promised land the writer of Hebrews says there are some who have yet to enter it and so let us strive to enter it and in our striving our works cease and we rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ. This everlasting possession is from an everlasting covenant. And it is the promised land that will come in resurrection. And what do we see in God speaking? We see, we see messianic promises. You, you will father kings. We see resurrection shadows. I will give it to you. And God says, I will be their God. I'll be their God. Meaning they will be his people. They will be his possessions. He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. He will guide them. He will care for them. He will watch over them. He will make the same demands of them that he's made of Abraham even in 400 years of bondage. And then, thirdly, we see that God is God Almighty through His requirement of circumcision. Requirement of circumcision. We'll pick up there next week. We're out of time.
that we see from the text this morning. I hope that you see that God is God Almighty, that that is his name. That is his name. That God is God Almighty. He can change a name. He changes Abram's. He changes Peter's. He changes Paul's. That he is Lord. And that as God Almighty, he can require whatever he wants to require. And he makes a requirement of the people of God of circumcision. Because he's God Almighty and he can. And what we are called to do is to obey him, to honor him, to walk before him, to be blameless. And when we fall and fail, to be like our father Abraham and simply fall on our face in humility and find in him everlasting grace. Father, you are God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that is faithful to his promises because you are all-powerful, able to do whatever you determine to do, not dependent on us. In your time, you move as you choose. And Father, as we wait on you to enter into this promised everlasting land that is ours as children of Abraham, grafted in by your grace, may we walk before you in blamelessness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.